0: It's all about the journey, it's all about the journey baby. Welcome to the on the way to new work podcast today without Michael because we had to flip coins who can join which meeting and I'm talking English because we're in New York and I have the chance to meet Amul Sava Hello welcome to New York thank you Amol and uh, you're an entrepreneur from here from New York?
1: Yeah, I'm from originally. New York. Yeah, I was born here, grew up here. My family's from India, and I lived almost my whole life in New York.
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of things uh, that I read about you, but um, as I usually do it, or Michael says it, I always say, say two, three sentences about you, and then Michael say, come on, Christoph, 20, 30 sentences. That's yeah, 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 so say more. A little bit say more background. So how would you describe who you are and what you do?
1: I'm a startup founder. started many companies uh, over time in different places. Um, Venture, things in venture, so not small businesses. Uh, Some of the bigger ones, I started Virgin Mobile in the US, which became a a pretty big business. It has maybe 10% of all the mobile phone users in the US use Virgin Mobile. Um, Started a smartphone company called Peak. It um, was a simple smartphone in the age of Blackberry and in the early days of iPhone. And um, we sold it all around the world. And eventually SoftBank bought the company from us in 2012. And the last five or six years, I've been working on many different startups and many different topics. I, I think I'm involved in 100 other people's companies, 100, wow. other 100 other companies. I started a company called Halo Neuroscience, which um, makes a neurostimulation device, which makes the brain work better. Uh, and that company is going quite well. It's run by my co-founder. It's based in San Francisco. Uh, I started an enterprise collaboration software platform called Notable, K-N-O-T-A-B-L-E. And it was actually out of building that software that um, I stumbled over the opportunity to build another new company, which is the one I've been working on a lot the last couple of years. It's called uh, Notel. Uh, which or, is where we're... For yeah. Germans, it's Knottel. Knottel. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> where we we're based that, yes, right now, right? Yes, yes, yes. And Knottel is a uh, office business. We run offices yeah. flexibly, but we run headquarters. So we run bigger spaces where you might have 100 people or 500 people Um it takes the idea from co-working that you don't know how much space you will need for how long, but it applies it for larger
0: uh, enterprises. So you just flipped through many big things, like starting with Virgin Mobile, which is a big thing, mm. uh, growing that fast and, and that early. Like, What drives you? Like, How did you come with the first businesses and what drives you? Like, How did it start?
1: I started, well, you know, it's just doing interesting things and working on interesting problems was what I wanted to do. And, um, I, uh, had the chance to work on some, some businesses when I was, uh, when I was younger, I, I delivered the newspaper and they paid me some cash. I, I got a printer for my computer, a color printer. I had one of the first color printers of anyone in my school. And so the first thing I did is I designed some money on my computer and I printed out all this money and I hired everyone in the school to work for me. And then I, uh... Opened a bank account and I put real money in the bank account and put the fake money in the pockets of my of my friends in in school. And then when uh, internet things started happening when I was in university, uh, I wanted to try that out. I made some websites, got some money. I think I built the first website that let anybody order a slice of pizza. It really? Yeah, like we built a website for Domino's, which is a large pizza company here in the U.S. And we had one of their stores hire us to build for them dominoesny.com and dominoesny.com was dominoes new york and on that website if you went to the website you would type in your address and press order with a pizza request and then our computers would send a fax to that store that would get printed out in the back of the store and they would come to your house and give you the pizza and
0: um i think that's where the idea for leaf for to deliver a hero came from so what keeps you, what keeps you uh, motivated to, to do that all the time? Like what drives you? Like...
1: Uh, well, I, th- I think it's just fun and creative work. I mean, I, I like uh, working on lots of different problems. Uh, I like to have some impact on those problems. Sometimes I had to work in places where I had no impact and it was always the same problem. What was it? <laughs> well, you know, in university, that's basically what you do. And then I was a PhD student and I did a PhD in philosophy. I was doing cognitive science and I spent you know, quite a few years just working on this one stupid book I was writing, and it was the same thing for years and years. And that's what also all my colleagues did in academia. They were working very carefully, but very slowly, on something that someday somebody would read, and maybe they would find something they could do based on that. And and I even I, I even worked at McKinsey for some time. And and when I was at McKinsey, it was kind of the same thing. You know, we were sort of trying to help other people do some things, and you never really saw what they did, and it didn't really matter, and it was just, were they happy with the work you had done or the report you had produced? And um, I I liked much more the idea of having my hand directly on the outcomes and uh, working on many different levels of problems, sometimes at a very high level of of abstraction and sometimes in a very specific narrow one. Um, And uh, when I was in entrepreneurial settings, I had the chance to do that. And uh, so it was rewarding. It wasn't sort of a plan from the beginning, but I think that Whenever I looked out at the people I most admired in society, often they had uh, seen some sort of problem, built some kind of solution for it, created a large organization that was deploying this problem everywhere, and, and ended up having a really big impact on the world. I didn't feel that
0: you know, politics or, or many other fields had that level of impact. How did you that but okay let's I uh, have many different questions. <laughs> um obviously there's a lot to learn from you but um, some of our listeners are very young like we have age 12 to beyond. Oh, so you're beyond. telling me I to be careful no, with No my no language. no no not not at polite. all not at all. <laughs> I just uh, was interested in uh, Michael told me you teach uh, kids in philosophy. Oh ah, yeah. yeah yeah. Yeah you still do that like b- b- yeah, because I, I did that
1: for a few years yeah. There's a school in my neighborhood and I wanted to see what the school was like. And I became friendly with the person who ran the school. And um, I thought, well, you know, I wonder what's happening with schools and everything. And I thought, uh, let me uh, let me give it a try. I'll come by once a week for like, not that long, maybe eight weeks or something. And I'll teach a class. Um, and it'll be neat because I'll get to learn something new about philosophy because I'll try to teach it to six-year-old children. Mm. And so I spent a few weeks thinking about it and preparing and collecting some readings and stuff like that. And then... And then I did it, yeah. And so I did it a co- for two years, and then it, I found it a little boring hanging out with fucking six year old children. It was a bit. And I mean, for the younger people on the phone, I'm sorry. You guys are nice. Thank you for listening to the podcast. But you can imagine what it's like hanging out with your younger sisters and brothers. It's not but still,
0: something. philosophy was uh, like you choose the topic of philosophy, obviously. Uh, well, I know I'm a lot
1: about philosophy because I worked in the area for a long time. I mean, you know, I basically trained to become a professor in philosophy. Um, and so that's why I chose it. And even at that time, I thought. Uh, People come to learning philosophy, at least in the US, too late. Uh, You you come to it as if it's like some super advanced topic. But actually, it's it's super basic. It's really a foundational area uh, in thinking about different problems. Some of the problems are sort of unsolvable problems. But by thinking about them, you learn at least how to think about anything. And um, I thought it might be worthwhile. And I was curious about that feeling I had uh, years ago when I was a student about whether a six-year-old child might have something smart to say about what is beautiful. Is beauty something abstract, objective, heavenly? Or is it something that you see differently from me and we can both be right because it's different? And people still debate that, but certainly children know that I love my drawing, it's very beautiful. Or we must all agree that that drawing is very beautiful and the puzzle that that one suggests. Mm.
0: Okay, so the connection from philosophy to what you did later on was more like you were interested in a topic, you studied that, you choose to study it, but... For example, what you do with your um, cognitive science startup is related to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny that it is, because I didn't work in the area at all. Uh, When I was finishing my dissertation, I was working on Virgin Mobile. I mean, in my spare time on Saturday, I would go to the coffee shop and read a bunch of papers and take some notes and move progress on my dissertation. I was spending most of my time on Virgin Mobile. But one of the things I heard about when I was in graduate school was so strange, it was so crazy that it just stuck with me for a long time. It was a um, researcher in Australia who had published a paper, and in this paper he said he had invented a device that would make people draw beautiful drawings. He had some people come into his lab, he would have them draw a dog or a cat, and they would draw the kind of dog or cat that really a you know, seven-year-old child or mm. even you or me would draw. We're not I'm not a very good artist. I stopped practicing years ago. I don't even know what to do. And it's a little two-dimensional cartoon, flat, ugly thing. And then he would put some kind of gadget on their head. And this gadget, he would let it run for 10 or 15 minutes. And then he'd have them draw it again. And in the paper, he shows the drawings. And it is astonishing. This image is like still with me so, so many years later. That the person goes from drawing something just crappy Something like actually quite cool, not like beautiful. He, the people didn't go from being like no one to being Albrecht Dürer. You mm. know, they went from no one to being someone a little bit clever, but with no other input or ideas or stimulation. It is just something done to their brain by some gadget, and instantly they're drawing. And then another fifteen minutes later, after the gadget is gone, they're drawing the bad drawings again. All right. Yeah, and so I saw this little picture, and I showed it to some of my colleagues in 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 the philosophy department. And my area was mind, you know, so I had some colleagues in uh, psychology and in neuroscience and computer science. And all these guys were like, oh, this paper is dumb. This guy in Australia is an idiot. The paper is not serious, cannot measure these drawings. He hasn't published very carefully how he did the research. And so many, many years later, uh, after Virgin Mobile and after Peak and a lot of other things I had done in business, I was thinking, well, now I want to work on something new. Let me uh, think of the most interesting things I can work on. And one of those things was just this thing I had run across years ago. I thought, well, let me look into this a little more. Let's see what happened since I've been away from it. And it turned out that some more work had been happening in the field. People had been building more sophisticated devices. Better, better science was happening. There were more interesting papers. Um, and, uh, and I thought, oh, this looks like it's ripened a bit. This might be a
0: nice time to, to have a whack. And so then I started working on it. So what? Where, where is this heading? Like, where is this going? I think it's very exciting what it does because it, like, kind of feels it augments the capability of what you are able to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the paper that I saw, so I, I was sitting in uh, September 2012 thinking, okay, they're about to buy my company. What should I do next? And so I'm doing a little bit of research on this uh, approach, which is called neurostimulation. And this neurostimulation technique um, I'm looking up the papers, and it turns out that this Australian guy had written another paper in early 2012. And in that paper, uh, the title of the paper was something like Using Neurostimulation to Solve Impossible Problems. It's a cool title. Impossible Problems sounds like the kind of challenge I'd like to work on. Yeah, And in the paper, he does this really famous puzzle. There's a puzzle that's maybe 115 years old. Uh, It was invented in 1903 or something by some French psychologist. And in that time... Many, many tens of thousands of people have seen this same puzzle. You come into the laboratory, they show you this puzzle, they give you five minutes and see if you can solve it. And then they either tell you a hint or they do something or something or something and then they see if you can solve it. So first the control is try to solve it on your own and then maybe they divide you into groups and some people get A and other people get B and then they try to solve it again. In the history of this puzzle, the average uh, rate of people solving it, uh, the name of the puzzle is called the nine dot problem the nine dot problem. It's nine dots in a square Mm -hmm. and you have a pencil. You have to put the pencil down and move it in four strokes but connect all the dots. Can't pick it up, four strokes, four straight lines. And anyone, the first time they see this problem, and in the entire history of the experimental work on this problem, the solution rate is 0%. If you get higher than 0%, you're doing something wrong in the design of the experiment, is what people normally say. So this Australian guy takes 40 people, he uh, divides them into two groups, shows one group the, the puzzle, and he puts some weird device on their head, but he doesn't really turn it on. It just like scratches their head a bit. And then the other group, he puts the device on their head, and he does turn it on. So the first group, uh, zero, solved the problem. And then the other group, half of them solved the problem. And that was amazing. And I was like, wow. If there is a thing that you can do that can help people, maybe our smartest people, maybe all our people, solve some of the hardest problems in the world, then this is obviously something that someone should work on. How does it work? Like, what does it do? Like, Well, the company is called Halo Neuroscience. And so we started this company, Halo Neuroscience, H-A-L-O. And the device, it looks like um, music headphones. So it fits on your head, and to a normal person looking at you, it just looks like you're listening to music or something. But built into the, the arm that goes over the top of your head is um, a pair of electrodes. And the electrodes, they send electromagnetic waves from the device through your hair, skin, and skull into the top part of your brain, the cortex, which is the outer area of your brain. And the energy that is being transferred into your neurons makes them more likely to fire but not so much likely that they automatically fire. And by adding this energy into your brain, when you think a thought that you were planning to think or trying to make a connection or solve some kind of puzzle, um, it happens more easily. The product that we started with, it focuses on the top of your head because that's the place where the motor cortex is and the motor cortex controls your body, standing, running, jumping. And what we found in our work on that area is when you use Halo, you run faster, jump higher, shoot better, you have more power. Uh, and already now, since 2015 when we launched it, uh, many of the world's elite militaries and elite uh, athletic performers like you know, Tour de France or the American NBA or Olympians are using the product to perform better. Uh, they perform better in training because in training they are able to do the training task better than they were before, and every time you train better, you get a bigger benefit the next time, the next time, the next time. Right. and so many of these elite athletes are using halo it 's quite amazing
0: Wow well, uh, well, I um, didn 't know that it goes that deep, but I thought that 's definitely one of the future areas and very interesting and that that 's why I stumbled upon it like when Michael told me uh, he 's doing this and that, and like oh, in what kind of time like how <laughs> do you all do that?
1: Yeah, in my free time. In your free time, your <laughs> spare
0: time. But before we go to that question, let's stick to that a little bit. Is there because we're always interested in like how work is changing and what gives people purpose for working. And we met through the Work Awesome conference actually. Hmm. That's how we originally met. And mm-hmm. um, Felix was in the podcast as well and um, i know michael was there and we are also looking into this field of ai so is there any connection you see when you look at halo the connection to the brain i um, also working with ai using that as a tool to augment people because there are many people being afraid of that what's coming and here's something that f- looks like there is a good way to connect the two worlds yeah yeah, yeah. augmented intelligence
1: so artificial intelligence, which exists inside a computer, your only interface to it is uh, your eyes, your fingers, yeah. if you're typing, your speech, just the normal ways that we communicate with other systems at arm's length. What I think is really the important thing about Halo is that it enters your brain another way, some this other way that you don't use currently. And what it does right now is very basic. Halo may or may not ever get to a point where that exact company is doing what is possible as the next and next and next but it's very easy to imagine uh putting ideas putting uh languages uh putting memories available to your brain when you need them and um if it's easy to imagine it and if halo already exists and if uh, your mobile phone is able to send a small electronic signal through the air with incredibly rich and complex messages, then I think the basic pieces of a technology that let artificial intelligence work for you, for mm. your brain, I think those pieces are there. Uh, infinite memory, infinite problem-solving ability, being networked together. I have to communicate to you in writing mm. or in words. I, it won't be so long before I can put a thought in your mind by thinking it.
0: What do you think? How far
1: is it away? Oh, that I have no idea. I mean, everyone always. Are we talking about
0: ten or fifty years?
1: Well, I mean, with animals already, uh, we have done it. We have taught a mouse in one place. By we, I mean our society has done this. You know, there are some researchers who have taken a mouse in on the east coast of the U.S., shown it some stuff, given it a shock. Now it's scared of that stuff, and then they were able to have a mouse in the west coast of the U.S. the next day when it sees that image to be afraid. So that's like transference transfer- of that memory. Yeah. Wow. And some of the techniques, you know, I mean, if that demonstration exists, it doesn't mean that that technique can be used right now. Mm-hmm. It's not safe to use it on humans. But, like, those basic pieces are all
0: getting built one by one by one. Yeah. And it's growing very, very fast. So um, how come that you're interested in a field like workspace, for example, like the the one thing feels like super high tech and it feels like it's using all your time and and attention, but um, at the same time you're investing in, um, in, yeah, how work is changing, workspace feels. Why is that area so interesting? Well,
1: I mean, the things that I've been involved in are not all under one organized idea. Um, I do have different connections to them or i know about this thing or that thing or whatever and that's what launches me off in a direction and it is weird i mean you were asking how did i get to working on halo neuroscience well 15 years ago i did a phd in the topic Mm. and so maybe i know something how am i doing anything on mobile phones well you know i had a friend who asked me to work on it and then once i worked on the mobile phones thing i thought oh let's do the smartphone thing um and then when I was done with smartphones, I thought, oh, well, the main way people use smartphones is to communicate and collaborate with each other. When I'm using it for my work, it's like 70% of the time it's emails. Another 10 or 20% of the time it's short messages. Almost none of it is talking. Mm. Let me build like an enterprise software company, which was this company, Notable. And in 2000, end of 2012, when I started working on Halo, I started working on this company, Knotable, K N O T. yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when I'm working on this Knotable, I was. Um, Building a collaboration space, but a digital one. I was building a workspace where uh, where people. Uh, well, now we're in a workspace where things are going well, and people are cheering because something just happened in the background. <laughs> I'm sure the microphone is okay. picking it up, but it's more yeah, authentic. Yeah, but in the in this collaboration workspace thing we're building, now something now very good happened. Yeah. Well, let me also clap. <laughs> Come on, let's have a cheer. <clears throat> it's good. Well, yeah, and I mean the, the business is working well, but in the in the um, collaboration workspace. I thought, well, you know, if we could work together without a million messages back and forth, but you could have one thing that you could see where you can post what's happening and have it be the sort of most updated final answer, the way we use a whiteboard in a room, like we're in a room right now, there's a whiteboard up here, it's beautiful, someone with very nice handwriting wrote this thing, and it's sort of like the answer. It's not a chat, the whiteboard, it is like a set of ideas. And online, we don't use it that much, you know? Like, I might write a long paper for you. I might write a presentation. But as we're working from week to week to week, what about a tool that does that? So we were imagining a whole new kind of tool. So we're building this tool. Turns out the place where we're building this tool starts turning into a collaboration workspace itself. All my friends' companies are coming by. Different entrepreneurs are coming and talking to me. They're like, oh, invest in my company. Advise me on this stuff. And the physical space starts having a life of its own. This is how Knottable and Knottel have a connection to each other. And so then we, know, and then we thought, oh, well, okay, find the office. Let's see what, what we can do here. What's going on with the office? And then as we started making that bigger, it started getting a lot bigger. So are, there are these loose connections but different, di- between these different things, but always it's about an opportunity to address a problem that has some kind of impact that
0: can have a large impact on lots of people all around the world. How do you manage this Per, on a personal level like how do you organize yourself to keep an overview and michael and, like i mean michael and i are both entrepreneurs and uh, i always have, have the feeling i get a lot of stuff done but when i talk to a guy like you i'm always thinking like okay christoph go 10 steps <laughs> back be a bit more humble and learn again <laughs> so that that sounds like a lot how do you stay yeah. that calm how do you stay that attentive how do you like work for yourself and, and organize that stuff You know, it's,
1: it's, it's not like a short recipe, but, um, one thing I used to do that I don't do anymore is I used to work in a style that, uh, I call being a hedgehog. A what? A hedgehog. A hedgehog is this animal, the name for it in English is hedgehog, and it's very spiky. And if you go to attack it Uh or if you find it in the forest, it turns into a little ball and all its spikes come out. Hmm? And, um... There's another way to behave, which is called being a fox. And the fox hunts the hedgehog, Mm. actually, in the forest. And the fox is clever. It runs around, Mm. and it's going up a tree, and then down in the river, and it's trying to catch the hedgehog. And in in their conflict, the fox is not like a a lion or a tiger or something that is so overwhelmingly powerful Mm. that it is a very direct attack or like a shark. Uh, the fox has to be clever to catch this hedgehog, mm. and the hedgehog has to be very focused to defend itself mm. against the fox. And this is their basic battle. And it's actually a very old uh, distinction that comes from this Greek uh, poet named Archilochus. And some people in, in 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 the UK and in the US have been talking a little bit about this: Are you a fox or a hedgehog? So some yeah. people are writing about this idea. For my uh, for most of my career working. Uh, and as a student, for sure. In, in the U.S., being a student is a very, like, focused thing. Mm-hmm. And as I'm doing all my things one by one by one, I'm thinking, oh, I have to be like a hedgehog. I can't get distracted. I can't do nine million things. I have to do this thing. It has to be really big, complicated, a massive system, and then the system is complete. It's my dissertation. It's this company. I'm the CEO. I focus like crazy on this thing. But after the the sale of Peak, I uh, decided that I would change. I decided that being a hedgehog was... Not me. I didn't like it. I found it tiring. I found that when... You know, the, when the, the fox was attacking me, it was like really depressing. And when mm. I'm running along, maybe that's fun. But then I'm giving up all the other nice things that could be happening. I was looking back on the five or six years that ended in 2012. And I was thinking, man, I said no so many times to so many interesting opportunities. And some of them are amazing. Like there are all these great companies where I could have invested some money or I could have been mm. here or there. Or if I had just been nice to this guy, think of this other opportunity that we might have had. And so I decided to change. And when I changed, I decided that I would say yes to every opportunity that came through my mind or was presented to me. So that's one thing. That's why the list is so long of the different things I work on. Uh, And the second thing is I thought, well, if I work on something, I will only work on things where I can do a small amount of work and make a small amount of progress, which is also just tangible. So that if I go away from it for a while and I come back, something at least is done. So I won't write an email and leave it in drafts. I'll write an email and send it. Or if I have an idea for a company, I'll register the domain name and make a website. So the next time when I'm talking to someone, I'll say, hey, I'm working on this company. Look at the website. Tangible progress. And the the third thing was that if the progress uh, was useful, if I was getting some feedback on it, I would continue. So that was the third idea. So say yes to everything. Make tangible progress on it. And then as long as there is progress, keep pursuing it. So I made this long list of stuff, started working on some things. Some things started going into the middle of like stopping progress, getting stuck, and nothing was happening. I had involved somebody, and maybe they weren't very motivated, and nothing was happening. One week goes by, two weeks, four weeks. And then I wouldn't spend my time on that. I would spend my time instead on the ones that were moving. And so then the next principle was that the things that are moving, the more rope they give, uh, keep taking the rope and go further, do more on them. That's how some of the things that have been working well have been working. Another important idea is that there's no project that I did entirely by myself. In in every case, I was looking for partnership and leverage from colleagues so Mm -hmm. for example halo neuroscience is a very nice company it's doing very well Uh, but it's run by my co-founder i you know when i started thinking about it i phoned up some old friends that were experts in neuroscience Mm -hmm. that i knew from my past life and one of them i convinced him hey man you've been at the same company for 14 years maybe you should leave and try to do something new i know a little bit about starting companies we can do it together and so now he's the ceo of his own company it's really cool and he's doing very well uh and then many other companies where i maybe didn't Start the thing myself, but I encourage another entrepreneur. And uh, when other people are also involved and they're making progress and they're feeling good, and you're helping in a way that's uh, helping them, uh, it can it can go. Uh,
0: very interesting four principles. Thanks for, for sharing that. Mm. So um, if you apply that to a normal workday, mm. how does a typical a normal workday look like? Is there a typical workday with this broad amount? Especially love the tangible progress Mm -hmm. thing to keep things moving
1: yeah yeah i well there is actually the um the it has some parts so one part of the workday is when i'm alone and using my computer and usually that means i'm i'm writing something i'm reading and writing basically emails or maybe some documents Mm -hmm. so that's one part I think a really—it's a very important part, actually. I, you know, Charles Darwin, for example, in the late 19th century, the the, uh, the British um, biologist, um, he was famous because he was in such good communication with other researchers around the world, and he apparently wrote 3,000 letters per year. So 3,000 letters a year is like 10. I don't know how many emails you read or write, but now I might write 300 uh, every day, and that i think is a big advantage to be able to be in touch with so many people in Mm. so many places on so many different topics to get information to be able to provide orientation and direction so that one part of my day is that it's email uh another part of my day is um uh, organized meetings with my internal colleagues in general the more mature my uh system here in the office in the company becomes the less time I'm spending in these organized meetings with uh, a small group of people around what are their priorities or some problems that have to be solved and so I spend you know one to two hours a week in a meeting like that with some of the internal colleagues a third part of my day is is uh, walking around so I not every day but most days will walk around a bit um, I'll either walk around here inside or also outside when I walk around inside I have a chance to make um, small observations and small suggestions and provide some small bits of input. But it's really five or 10 minutes on any given topic with any given person. But it's a chance for me to be visible and available to people. And then uh, a fourth part of my day is the deeper one-on-one meetings w- with people that are either internal or external where we're trying to figure out something new. And often when we're trying to figure out something new, we're either establishing a new relationship, we're just getting to know somebody new, or we're deep into working on a complicated problem. And usually working on a complicated problem is not like I need to tell you a bunch of information. Mm. Instead, it's you know the information, you've read some message or document or whatever, and now let's find out how, will we, mm. how will we handle the situation. So when I'm alone... That's like this office hours thing where I'm away, Um, some amount of time in team meetings where I'm providing some coordination between my key people, uh, walking around a bit, and then in some
0: more detailed problem solving with uh, with smaller groups. If you look at that, like very hands on wise, it it sounds like you're very structured, have a very clear idea about that. But um, do you have certain meeting guidance, rules, stuff for your people where you're like, this is how I want to prepare? For example, we had um jeff bezos very first uh managers in europe in the podcast and he said there's a six-page meeting that they come up with that they still have today at amazon yeah which i love as a format do you yeah. have stuff like that also like regarding your emails i mean 300 emails a day are there certain things yeah. you do in a special way
1: yeah um you know i don't have for my colleagues as prescriptive a formula as, for example, this uh, Amazon meeting. And I don't think that every manager in Amazon is using the six page No, 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 of course. I think it's like when you're presenting to Jeff or some of the top executives, you kind of have to do it in a certain way. And um, I think what that describes is something that I do believe in and I do ask for it, but from the folks that I work most closely with. So different people in the company are still building a way of working and a culture and a style that makes sense for them. And it's informed by some principles, I think, that are universal. They're not just things that I came up with. I mean, I think the best writer on this topic is um, is Andy Grove from from Intel. He wrote a bunch of really ingenious books in in the '80s and uh, early '90s, uh, and one of them is called High Output Management. I think it's super good. And then more recently, um, you know, there's all this stuff around getting things done and Agile mm-hmm. and all these other approaches that that are really good explanations. But when we do a meeting, I mean, I think one of the things that's changed since the time of Andy Grove and even since the time of Bezos' six page memo being created. You don't need to be in a meeting to give people information. Mm. Now we use other tools to do that. If you want an update or you want a detailed update or you want a deep dive, all that analysis can be done, written, sent to you. You can read it at your time and convenience. You can provide comments, ask a lot of questions, but that information transfer can happen using tools. (coughs) Another thing that you can do uh, offline and away from the in-person meeting is the coordination work of who's doing what, where are you, what's the progress. Mm-hmm. Many wonderful tools do that. But when we're together, um, we should have the table set with what we want to know. And I think that's what they mean when they sit and read the six-page memo. And then we discuss. And that might mean asking questions or challenging people or you know, coming to some level of consensus or finding out who doesn't agree and find out what do we need to do next to solve it. And that's what we try to do when we're together. Um bring our attention to joint focus on a specific question. And I don't have that many meetings, and so I don't actually ask for too much. Mm. It's nice, you know, if you're wanting to, Train your people or if you're a 12-year-old listener, it's nice if at the meeting you know what the goal is of the meeting, what are the roles of the people in the meeting, if they've all been informed by some things. And if at the end of the meeting you find out what have we learned, you're able to summarize that and say what the next steps are and then when are we meeting again. Those five, yeah. six things are basic meeting hygiene.
0: Oh, I, I love the point. You're absolutely right. Like Times change even since the beginning of Amazon. There are so many new Tools that make it faster and more transparent, but still, yeah. the, this part of the culture having this idea, presenting information in a different way than mm-hmm. PowerPoint, 100 slides, and stuff like that is. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, So we don't use those. We don't use long memos and we don't use PowerPoints.
1: We just use small bits of plain text. And mm -hmm. the plain text, yeah, you might have sent it as an email just before the meeting starts. You might post it on our tool, (laughs) the Notable tool called Note. Or you might, whatever, have a PowerPoint with the words on it. But either way, it's like 10 things written down that we need to cover. And we cover them. And then we say, what are the next steps? And then we expect some action on those.
0: Email-wise, is there anything you do different? And and, I mean, many people don't like to use email but um, when we discuss it in the podcast again and again like we, it's still the most important tool in the west in the western hemisphere not in, not in Asia yeah, obviously but yeah. here yeah. So he anything, skipped
1: email yeah, <laughs> they
0: but skipped it. I, people complain about the stuff they have to do a lot I mean
1: people complain about meetings yeah. like there's nobody who says that oh they love meetings going to long meetings yeah, yeah. this and that but they're an important tool for dealing with other people and the same is true for email I mean I put something on my phone once that measures how many minutes everything is happening that, I was saying 70% of the time that my screen is yeah. on on my phone, it's email. That is totally correct. And a three-minute uh, read and response on an email that avoids a 30-minute in-person meeting or a 15-minute phone call, that's good. That's really mm-hmm. good. You should be wise enough at a certain age, you know, maybe by age 15, you should be wise enough to know that not everything can be done on email, and you find yourself in problems if you're doing that. Um Most common complaint about email is the overload created by email, and I agree with that. I think there are many things that should be done in person, some things to be done on the phone, and some things to be done in other tools. Other tools are much better than a long email chain. If you send me the 15th email in the chain, hey, following up, where are we on this, and you're in my company, I won't be happy. I I will say, listen, I'm supposed to now read 15 emails backwards in order to give you a one-sentence answer to a question. It would be much easier for all of us if you synthesize for me what just happened and what has to be done next, and I will do it for you. Don't make me read it all and think about it all and propose the step and then also do it. Let's go. Let's prepare the action. And I think that that's true for anyone. You know, if I walk into your office and I say, Oh, I want to tell you a long story about what happened over the last nine weeks when all I want is for you to introduce me to some other person, let's get to the point.
0: Yeah, that's true. And, and it doesn't, like, it's not the tool, it's more like how you then use and leverage it, and there's more coming up. What do you see as next big areas that you look into, where you say, like, as I learned now, you have your eyes on many, many different fields, what excites you at the moment? Uh, this
1: is the year to start your blockchain project, if you didn't start it yet. I think there are no useful blockchain projects at this moment. There are many lovely ideas, and there are some projects that have lots of money moving through Mm -hmm. them, but no one's using blockchain that I've seen for anything, like using. There are many plans to use it for a bunch of really nice applications, but if you work in an area where um, this uh, truth machine, blockchain is a truth machine, if you think that bringing truth to the flow of information that is in your business would be helpful, now is a good time to think about it. Uh, the the set of technologies have evolved to a certain point that you no longer have to invent the solution for it to work. There are some strengths and weaknesses to the ones that exist, but you know, if you started your media site in 1995 with the first bad web servers, <coughs> eh, later you change web servers, carry on. But the time that was the time to start Netscape and uh, Amazon and whatever, and plenty of other failed ventures. But when people hear about Bitcoin, they think that is it. But actually, when you hear about Bitcoin, you've only heard about, let's say, Netscape. There will be many other amazing and interesting businesses and companies that come from this really big innovation. So, for example, we at Notel are already working on an important project on this. We call it COIN, K-O-I-N. Of course, everything has to have a K. And the um, the coin is a project around real estate listings and information. It's a big, messy universe of information, many trillions of US dollars of value, mm. and really no centralized, clean, indexed set of information. And this might be a nice way to do it.
0: Oh, well, It's a very true point. And right now it feels like many companies use Bitcoin, AI, digital transformation as buzzwords to keep moving, but you're right, not really working on it. So, interesting point, and I cannot imagine one entrepreneur right now mentioning that in the podcast so clearly, saying that's an area to look into. Hmm. Um, where do you take your inspiration from when um, when you look at these different fields and you say, okay, um, I'm interested in Bitcoin, or neuroscience, or wherever, like, first of all, like, how does the spark come? Like, how do you feel that's interesting? And then how do you build up knowledge in that area? What sources do you use
1: there are some topics i don't know that much about and i'm very curious about them and i keep feeling that i missed my chance in them for example well i think maybe a year ago i thought that about blockchain Mm. and uh maybe three or four months ago some of my colleagues maybe probably six months ago uh october november um so many people were talking to me about blockchain and i kept saying i don't know anything about it not for me someday we'll see so I was actively ignoring this area. People <clears> were coming and saying, oh, this, 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 this. And I was like, no, I'm a hedgehog. I must focus at least on the things I've chosen to focus on. I can't get follow you down some windy path into the woods. Uh, so I kept saying that. And then uh, in December, January, um, I thought, oh, well, you know what? And if you remember, the prices of all these th- these <clears> things were going crazy at that time. And I thought, you know what? Maybe the general market awareness of this thing has reached a point where next year there will be real opportunities. Obviously this thing is a bubble and it's craziness, it's a fad and something Mm. will happen just on this price of Bitcoin but maybe now the technology just as an area is is ready so this is an answer to your question Mm. how do I find out something I want to do Well, I started paying attention. That's all. Mm. People are mentioning it. I would double click when something would be there. If someone wanted to tell me about something, I would say, tell me something I don't know. I would ask them things based on what I had learned. When I went to the conferences, I started paying attention when I was in Davos or DLD or whatever. I'm like looking, I would go to the crypto places. I would ask all, all the best people, whatever they knew. And pretty soon I stopped learning anything new from talking to them. So I found out, oh, I think I know everything now. It only took like a month. This is a really early field. No one knows anything. (laughs) If you can follow into an area and after one or two months find out that you might be one of the experts in it, well, I guess the area is very shallow, first of all. But second is you you might be in a position to to give it a try. So then I thought, okay, now I know everything about this blockchain stuff. Let me now uh, figure out how I might apply it to an area that I have some other resources. And so that was my next step. And I started testing the basic bits and pieces of some ideas with some of these same experts. And then it was getting developed. And then we we started building it.
0: If there is a field where you say, like, you cannot, like, obviously I learned now you use people as a source. Like, you Mm -hmm. pay attention, listen to people, and Mm -hmm. ask them questions. Is there anything else you use, like books, videos, (coughs) stuff?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm mean, like, when I was saying double click, that's
0: what I meant. As, like, okay, okay. Then if, you if something was drifting deeper. around,
1: I would go to the talk, I'd buy the guy's book, I'd read the book, I would, you know, write him an email, what else should I read, I would read that thing. Yeah, it's a good, it's a, it's a thoughtful process of research, but it's not just passive consumption. I mean, you can read a lot, you should also listen a lot, and then you have to ask... And then by asking, you're testing your knowledge of the area. And yeah. then the next step after that was actually testing an approach on it. So then I'm like, hey, I'm working on this thing. I'm doing this this way. La, 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 la. What do you think? What should I change? What should I do? And then getting more of these expert reactions. Now, not everybody will have access to everyone they want to get mm. access to. So maybe I have some, some nice things working for me to do that. But it's the same approach. I mean, if I wanted to learn about... Um, really anything there is someone around somewhere who knows something and is a starting point and that person oh oh you went to university in in tunisia do you think you could put me in touch with uh, your old professor mm. of history in tunisia oh okay and what about the politics and can i uh, introduce you to this other friend i have and will you be at this conference maybe we can meet at this place and then eventually you know about the politics and the coup and you know how you
0: how you would invade tunis if you needed to invade tunis i'm uh <laughs> We had uh, a lot of podcasts and a lot of talks today, but I have the feeling like in just 40 minutes, I'm uh, pressure pumped with new ideas, and I have to now explore blockchain. I started that one morning, and I gave up after two days, and you said you did it a month, <laughs> and you're now the expert. So um, still a, a lot to catch up. Um, very, very interesting. Last question. Um, and we always ask that everyone in, in the podcast and um, it, If books are an area you're interested in, and Mm. I think from philosophy there's something, Um, we make it quite challenging. We we usually ask for five book recommendations, and number one should be your number one recommendation. If I say I pick one out of these fives, I read the number one. Yeah what would be these five yeah, sure. books? I mean there
1: are some things on my mind uh, you didn't notice my desk my desk
0: has 150 books piled on it the desk with a lot of books on yeah, it that's share one of the that's one of the been. four
1: piles of them and we have a whole library of other books that they keep clearing off my desk and putting into other rooms because as i look through a book i i may not always read it super carefully yeah. you know i might take some book that i heard about and take a look and see if it's worth seeing but once i'm done with them i bring them here because at home i'm not allowed to keep these huge piles of books i'm starting to have problems and so i keep them in the office and um some of them, when they're super useful, I, uh, I get 10 or 15 more copies and I share them with my colleagues. I'm sure many people do this. But the, uh, the three or four or five that come to mind, one that I always recommend, the first one is um, it's by this, uh, this professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard. His name is Heifetz. And um, the book is called Leadership Without Easy Answers. And Leadership Without Easy Answers is about leadership where you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy when you do know the answer. It's pretty easy when the answer is like, yeah, let's put a highway through here and the traffic will go down. It's much harder when we know the highway won't help and yet the traffic is still a problem. And it can be a political problem, it could be a problem for the company whose product isn't working and you have to invent a new solution and it's a problem that's mostly about people, not about a technical solution to a problem. So I think that one is one of the best. Uh, another one is one that I'm just, uh, just finishing now, it's by this guy Gaddis. Uh, he's a historian at Yale and he's a historian of war strategy. Historian of the Cold War, uh, and the name of the book is On Grand Strategy. I think it's very nice. Um, I'll give you the Andy Grove book, High Output Management. I think it's super good. And the Ray Dalio book from this year called uh, Principles. Those two books together are mirror images of the same set of ideas that uh, a business or really any organization is like a way of working and a bunch of people, and together it's a machine. So you design a machine, and then you can fiddle the machine if you don't like what's coming out of it, and you can keep tweaking it, tweaking it, tweaking and then um, maybe the last one I'll give you is um, another one I, uh, that I quite like, which um, I also asked some of my colleagues here to read, which is, um, let's see, uh, what would be a good one? We did High fits and Grove. Uh, well, it's kind of boring, but that Agile book by Sutherland is very nice. It's a recent book about uh, how, how people work in Agile work styles. Um,
0: but I'll just give you my favorite novel Moby Dick by Melville yeah Mm. nice actually these were again five new book recommendations I think Mm. uh, the Ray Dalio I stumbled upon uh, in one one other podcast but all the other ones uh, Mm. are new so that's very interesting to have a different view thank you so much for your time Amor I know it's uh, it's been already oh it's really fun thank you for including a long meeting but um, I really appreciate that you took the time pleasure thanks It's all about the journey.